Here we go. December the 13th, 2015, lecture discussion number 224 on the Book of Romans. And as always is the case, uh, and I just mentioned it to the, in the pregame here to the class, a few items of interest have come across my desk. It happens every week. And some of it I bring to you, some of it I disregard, but the, all of it is interesting, and I appreciate those of you who are sending it to me. Following, It falls into the watch, therefore, category, uh, specifically, uh, specifically Luke 17.26. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. So he is saying that the time that I am coming, either to gather the taking of the bride or the gather of the gathering of the bride, or the time at which he comes to return to Israel, will have a relationship to Noah and Lot. See also Matthew twenty four thirty seven. But as were the days of Noah, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Excuse me, <coughs> I'm struggling here. As you know, Christ connected his coming to Noah and Lot for a reason. It's not to be ignored. What was God saying to us? Thank you. What was he saying? Of all the people in the Bible that he could have used uh, to uh, give us some kind of early warning system, he uses Noah and Lot and puts them in a relationship all the time in Scripture, the two of them. So what do we know? We know that uh, Noah witnessed exceedingly great wickedness, and so did Lot. And both saw God intervene, witnessed it, saw what God did and how he did it and knew why he did it. Saw God end the evil. They got advanced warning. Do I have a difficulty? I'm fading in and out. I'm green here. I'll lift it to a better position. This is off. 19 is dead. Might be mute, might be main mix. There it goes. Anyway, both not not both Noah and Lot saw God end the evil. And in Noah's case, he actually got to see the length of time that was involved in the ending of the evil. He saw the evil progress. And thus we learn that God has a limit. Both the pre-flood world and Sodom came up against that limit. What was happening at Sodom... God calls exceedingly great wickedness and evil beyond anything that we actually know or can imagine. Same thing was happening at the time of Noah to the antediluvian world. You should recognize, by the way, the merciful component of God ending sin. When he stops it, that is love and mercy. The limiting of wickedness or the ending of evil is an act of mercy, an act of kindness. You should recognize that. It should be obvious to you. If not, just ask the most apparent of the inevitable questions. What would ultimately become of mankind or angels if God does not stop them? If evil is not contained, what happens? Just take physical death, which we all face, some of us sooner than others. 
what it does at the least is accomplish two objectives. Now, it does more than that, and next week I'll get into the implications of the limits on evil. But physical death for today accomplishes two objectives. Physical death terminates the wickedness of those perpetrating wickedness. Stops them. And it ceases the suffering, the sufferings of those who are victimized. So he ends suffering and he stops evil with physical death right now. It's one of his uh, methods, if you will. Physical death, therefore, is a barrier. It's a a fence, a wall. It's also a containment facility. Uncontained sin is, therefore, right now, and always has been, something that is unattainable. Does that make sense? Nothing, no creature, no created being with free will to reject and create evil on his own, to reject God and be evil, it can get to a place where sin uh, is not limited. A loving, merciful God does not allow it. So uh, back to the what I said earlier, why not? What other considerations are involved with sin? Why does God limit it? The, uh, the folks that say that we have unfettered free will are obviously incorrect. This is one example of something that you are not ever able to do. God stops you. Anyway, Noah and Lot were surrounded by a level of sinfulness that mankind has not yet experienced since. And Christ says that it is coming back near the time and at the time of his coming for the bride and his coming for Israel. The level of sinfulness is going to reach that of Sodom and the antediluvian or the pre-flood world. So I am doing what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to watch for anything that resembles the conditions of Noah and Lot. He gave it to us so that we would not only know it, but we would be comforted by it. When, when he says something's going to happen and it starts to happen, then that is a time for you to go, my goodness, it's a clock. You now have inside information. You can invest in it. Somebody came to me and said, would you put your money into defeating aging? I would not. Because I know ultimately that's going to lead to great evil. But I would know that that would be the right method to invest, wouldn't you? It's going to happen again. Being that I submit we are accelerating to the end of the age of the Gentiles, I'd just like to know where the needle is right now. If Sodom and Gomorrah on the, on the scale, if that's Sodom and Gomorrah, where do you think we are right now? How close are we? We're somewhere in here. We're certainly a long way from zero. We're not getting to, sin is not infinite, infinite, but it is going to be an astonishing level for those who are here. Where's the needle at today? Daniel 12.4, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal this book until the time of the end. God said to Daniel, shut the book that you wrote. By the way, Daniel did not understand what he wrote. He would, he would go to Jeremiah and Ezekiel and try to figure out what they were saying and see if he could make a combination of the three books to understand his own. It's a fascinating truth 
about Daniel, of an incredibly wise man struggling to figure out what it was that God had given him. Anyway, let me repeat that. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So that's another clue. At the end, the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel are going to be understood. That is what he's saying here. At the end, at the time where Christ is about to return, either again for the taking of his bride in the air or a landing on the Mount of Olives to uh, save Israel, the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel are going to be understood. Notice how I put those together because they belong together. Daniel and Revelation are a pair. They're a unit. They have never been solved Hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, commentators and scholars looked at those books from great minds. Isaac Newton, for example, could not figure out Revelation and Daniel. Many will move quickly, Daniel says, searching for a thing. Knowledge is going to increase. Daniel and Revelation, as you know, mostly have a tribulational context. But I submit the speed at which man is able to progress is a characteristic of the approaching end. So this needle has moved really slow all the way to here. I am telling you that it's going to go to there really fast, extraordinarily fast. I use the example all the time of the Berlin Wall. One day there was a Berlin Wall and there was a communist East Germany. The next day there was not. One day there was a Soviet Union. The next day there was not happened so quickly. It was the speed at which it, it moved. And I submit that the mankind is, is progressing exponentially. As, and it's, that is a characteristic of the approaching end. Look at what has happened in your lifetimes. Most of you uh, were a mix here, an amalgamation. We're either really, really old, which I, that's my category, or we're quite young, which is the other half of this congregation or class today. If you had told me that by the time I was in my mid-60s that this would be a cashless society, I would never have imagined that that was possible, not in my lifetime. We're going to go from a cash society to a cashless society in a month. We're that close. We have kids today that don't have any cash. They never touch cash. They have a card their school lunch with a card, they go to vending machines with a card, they go to the movies with a card, they do everything with a card. What a, what a change in my lifetime. And We won't even talk about computers and cell phones and all of that stuff. The solving of the book of Daniel and its complement, the book of Revelation, the melding of the two has really taken place in my lifetime. Daniel's unsealing, the book of Daniel being unsealed and the understanding of Revelation has happened in the last 30 years. So that tells us that we are close to the end. How close? Humankind is gaining speed. Most of you know this because you read the same strange things that I do. Hence the answer to the question, were you strange before you came to Cliffside or did Cliffside make you strange? We have established that you were strange before I had anything to do with you. It is some kind of failure genetically on your part. But you know this then, the mega rich billionaires have come together. They have all found each other. 
And they have emerged from the computer and the technical products industries and they have united. Are you following this? I hope you are. What are they doing? They are pouring this incredible wealth that they have. An amazing level of wealth. They've made money in the tech industries by the billions. And they are taking that wealth and they are using it to defeat death. They are pouring their wealth into defeating death by aging or death by decay. What I call Adam death versus Abel death, right? This is a uniting of resources. They're searching frantically for the mechanism that will arrest the mortogenic factor, the death generator. And how are they doing? They're succeeding. They are now able to return a mouse to its youth. They are very close to extending, doubling the age of dogs. And it has happened in the last year. They are rapidly succeeding. 2015 is being hailed as the year that death by decay has been wounded. That's one of the great significance of the year 2015. Death by decay has been affected. We have it wobbling, is what they will say. They almost knocked it out. The goal of killing death has suddenly advanced. The needle has moved dramatically. It happened almost in the last year. They believe this group that is focused on this with hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars, they believe that human life expectancy is on the precipice of being doubled. And it will happen so fast. One day, you will wake up very soon and they will have the ability to double human life expectancy. By the way, who's first in line for the pill or whatever device they have? Raise your hand if you're foolish enough to think it will be you. How much will it cost? See, I have long said that what's one of the things the Antichrist has at his disposal is the ability to extend life expectancy. How desperate will people be to get it? It only solves the aging factor, though, the death by decay, the mortogenic generator or the death generator. It does not stop death by outside force. As it was in the days of Noah, human lifespan will be dramatically lengthened as it was likewise at Sodom. Two of the characteristics of the pre-flood and the Sodom population. Now, in concert with the rush to defeat aging is the gene editing processes, the ability of biological engineers to alter plants and insects. Small rodents has already happened. You're familiar, I'm sure, with the artist that has genetically modified a rabbit in order to have a green rabbit. So uh, non-traditional gene editing applications, by the way, are mostly unregulated. The human genome... Editing has been regulated in the Western civilization or the Western hemispheres, but it is not regulated, let's say, in China and the Oriental areas where they are very good at replicating somebody else's ideas. 
But the non-human, there's no one paying attention to non-human genetic editing. Animal genome editing is completely overlooked. And you know why, don't you? Because animals, comparatively to the human species, have relatively short generational spans. So I can take an animal and I can get four or five generations in a very short period of time, especially a mouse. It's not then a surprise that genetic science is racing to modify animals, and they are. What's going to be the eventual impact? What will happen to the biosphere, the ecology, when I have genetically modified animals? with different attack and defense structures. I can add an attack or a defense structure to, to an animal. I could make, for example, a, a dog poisonous if I am so, as, as so ambitious. As it was the days of Noah, so will and Lot. So will the end of the age be. Now in the, now add in the plight of the Jews in Europe, specifically Germany. Germany is fast accepting many thousands and many, many thousands and thousands of immigrants. And the majority, overwhelming majority of these uh, immigrants have an animus to the Jewish people. And once again, Germany is becoming hostile to Jews. The rabbis are saying, leave if you're a Jew. There is no future for Jews in Germany or in Europe for that matter. And some are asking, what is the Prime Minister Merkel, what is she thinking? Why is she allowing this incredible influx of anti-Jewish immigration into her country again? When I say again, the final solution of Adolf Hitler was nothing if not the most brutal. Well, really, and that's not true, is it? Stalin uh, exceeded Hitler in body count. It really doesn't matter what Merkel is thinking. The results are is that Germany is going to transform, just as Ezekiel 38 says, into a country that is hostile again with the Jewish people. They, didn't, they said when Israel was founded, never again. Have you heard the Jewish Israelites say that? Never again. Referring to the slaughter of their uh, families in World War II. But they're wrong. It is going to happen again. How close are we to it? Okay. That's enough of the uplifting part of the sermon where we're all now. I, I would be remiss. People get on me about that. They said, does anybody really like coming to hear you? And I said, no, they don't. I have, I have 20 years of evidence to the contrary now. So, But why do you keep doing it? Because someday I'm going to stand in front of that throne and I'm going to have to answer. And I'm not going to take a body blow. I'm going to stand there and say, I thought that the Bible was absolutely true and extraordinary, amazing. That's what I thought. And I thought that you wanted me to say what I said. And I did the best that I could. I, I, I have no fear of that part of the judgment that I face. And I, 
I've never compromised on that. I defy somebody to tell me that I, or find a case where I did some kind of seeker-sensitive sermon. Is there ever? You've been some of you have been here the, almost the entire time. Have I ever done a secret, a secret, a seeker-sensitive, contemporary, warm, fuzzy, cartoon-showing song and dance? I've never done it. Not in 20 years. I'm not about to start now. Okay. Luke 14:25. That's where we're at. Uh, through 35. Oh. So I'll put this on the board for those of you who say I never put it on the board. I do enough just to keep you from saying you never put it on the board. And that's where we are today. Jesus Christ, the Ancient of Days, the Creator of Time and all things, He puts together this amazing uh, sequence in Luke 24 or 14:24 through 35. He starts out by talking about the prioritizing of love. This is just a recap. The prioritize. I'll just put priority. Love priority. Love less versus uh, hate. Hate is not in the text. God does not uh, uh, do that. Did not do it. Then the cross beam, if you remember, which is a public display of guilt, struggling with the cross beam. Then after the cross beam comes the foundation and the tower. Then after that is the surrendering king. And then the final is good. Salt is good. Okay? So that is his list in, uh, pretty much in uh, Luke 14 through 25 through 35. Now I'll give you some ideas. We, we, we went after the tower last week, and so let me add some more information to that so you understand uh, the premise that I have. Actually, I would say the conclusion that I have. Psalm 18.2, I'll give you that. Let me double check that one before I stick it on there. Sometimes I can't remember what I'm doing. Is that a surprise? I was right. Psalm 18.2. You know it, I'm sure. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. I cannot say that enough. Deliverer. Understanding this deliverer, this delivery, this delivering theme that is in uh, in the Bible, very, very important. Christ is the rock. He's the tower of safety and strength. The fortress and tower have a relationship. When you see tower in the Bible, start thinking fortress, start thinking fortification. Christ is the rock. He's the tower of safety and strength. And the one who delivers, he's the deliverer. Again, this theme of delivering. Just to help you with this, my, I'm going to rant here a second. Judas is the counterfeit. I have, I have Zechariah 12 being put in front of you there, but Judas and Christ. I have the good shepherd and I have the idol shepherd. By the way, idol is I-D-O-L, our pagan shepherd. So I have the good and the pagan shepherd side by side, just as Zechariah 12 said they would be. One has a wilted arm and is blind, and he's leading the sheep to slaughter. 
And, and so this theme of delivering, by the way, starts there. It doesn't start there, but it's exp- explained there. Judas the counterfeit, he's intent on doing something. He's intent on delivering Christ to the Pharisees. He's going to be the deliverer of Christ. That's his goal. That's his plan. It is impossible to betray Christ. He's not the betrayer. He's the deliverer of Christ. And it's important to know the distinction. And again, this is a part of my instinct to rant. Or not. I am so tired of Judas being called a betrayer of Christ. It's always been an irritant to me. It is illogical. It can't be defended. Judas was well aware that Christ could not be deceived. If you can't be deceived, you can't be betrayed. Judas knew the significance of deliverance. He knew the difference. This is omniscient God, omnipotent God here. Now, he may not have had a full understanding of Christ's deity or a full understanding of Christ's power, but Judas learned very fast. And he knew that Christ could not be betrayed. He couldn't be fooled. And he had so much power, he couldn't be overcome. Anyway, the tower speaks of security. I build towers as fortifications and they they give me security. From the enemies. Psalm 61, 1 through 3. Hear my cry, O God. Attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth I will cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. There that theme is exactly expressed. Now we have Psalm 144. Hope I get this right. One through two. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle, my loving kindness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield and the one in whom I will take refuge, who subdues the people under me. So there you now have the same, almost the same verbiage, the same words. And every time the tower is a fortification, it is a a shelter, it is a refuge, it is a stronghold from the enemy that is coming after you. Note those similarities. Rock, fortress, deliverer, tower of safety, strength, protection from the enemy, shelter, refuge. These are all what? They're all a military context. When it says in... Luke 14, 24 through 35, that you're to go out and build a foundation and set a tower on it. That is a military event. Luke 14, 24 through 35 is in a military context. The foundation of the tower. If the tower is not completed... Or even if the tower is completed, what's the purpose of the tower, the completion of the tower? It's to fight the enemies that are coming. It's for war. And that's pretty much where we left off. So let us proceed to the surrendering king now. Again, I have the priority, the cross beam, the foundation tile, tower, the surrounding, or the surrender, gosh. Stop. 
why am I a bad trumpet player? I find out every Saturday with my trumpet teacher that I am a bad trumpet player. And I am a bad trumpet player because my tongue is twice the size and width of a normal human being. And if I get it dry, it will not perform at all, regardless of how I instruct it. (sighs) Remember the entirety of the pieces, the priority of love. He says, you must love less everything else but me. You still love it, but you love it less. The priority in your life is Christ. The cross being, again, public admittance that you deserve your execution. The foundation in the tower now is a military event, the building of it to protect you and to fight off your enemies with. Then we have the surrendering king and salt is good. It's critical when we start to look at that list that that is about Christ. And it has an Old Testament complement. So we have to find Christ in the midst of his words. He is teaching about himself again, foremost and always. It's what he does. So let's read it one more time for today in case anybody missed last week which is pretty much everybody. I also get mail all the time. Why do you repeat so much of your lectures from week to week? And I always respond to them, you should see who doesn't come. I think that's hilarious. They never do. Thanks for Dave for laughing or pretending to laugh. Okay, here we are, 14, 28 through 34. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first? And consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. Salt is good is the conclusion of those four things in front of it, the priority of love, the cross beam, the foundation, and the tower, and the surrendering king, concludes, if you will, with salt is good. Some will say it concludes with the three parables of lost things. Uh, I'll get to that in the weeks to come. Salt is good, but if salt has been convicted of foolishness, by the way, I didn't make this mention last week. I'll do it. I'll throw it in here. Probably do it again when it comes back up in a minute. The word is from where we get our moronic. Convicted of being moronic. So, that's important. The word flavor. But if the salt has lost its flavor, or if the salt, actually, literally, if the salt is moronic, convicted of being moronic, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear... Let him hear. The implication in that is that we will have a lot who do not hear, do not understand a thing that he just said. 
don't understand the priority of love, the cross beam, the foundation in the tower, the surrendering king, or the good salt. You won't get it. So let's uh, let's kind of go over this a bit. A man until intends to build a defense fortification, but he doesn't get it done. He's unable to complete it. What's the obvious questions now? Ask some questions. Whenever you read the Bible, ask questions. Why is he building this structure? What's his plan? What's he expecting? That seems obvious, does it not? He expects to be attacked. He has learned that he's about to be attacked. So he needs a foundation, and a pretty big one, because he's going to put a tower on it, and he's going to fight. There's an anticipation of an advancing hostile force coming in his direction. So he's going to protect himself to be able to resist this certain enemy. And he begins to construct his fortress. And again, notice the two aspects of the project. I have the foundation aspect and I have the tower aspect. Two separate but united pieces. Foundation and tower. In those days, how did they build a foundation? What did they use? Did they have concrete? Say no. Did they have a pump truck? Say no. Of course, many will disagree. They think that Adam and Seth had mastered the ability to take sand and liquefy it and turn it into a stone and pump it up and make rocks with it and build structures. That, by the way, is ancient Jewish analysis of Adam's capability. And we know that he was a whole lot smarter than all of us put together. In any event, how do at the time of of Christ when he is saying this to to the multitudes, the great multitudes who are all hearing him, by the way, as he says it, what is a foundation to those folks? I'm going to build a foundation. What am I building it out of? I'm going to use rocks. Biggest rocks I can. The more, the bigger the rocks, better positioning, the more weight they can take. The foundation, the rock, supports, allows for the tower. So think rock when you see foundation. You're going to build your tower on the rock, hopefully. And the tower is uh, where the weapons are fired. The tower is the higher ground, so strategically it has value. In that regard, the tower is going to be where your defense systems, your, your, the people that are helping you defend, uh, will be. And how are the attackers going to hit you in your tower? You've seen all the movies, I hope. You play the silly video games that I never play. How do you knock down a tower? You hit it with siege tactics, right? If the tower is suspect in its construction, if I'm sorry, if the foundation is suspect, 
the tower is going to fall. It will be demolished by, by typical siege ta- tactics where they just ram it and ram it and ram it until it finally collapses and then uh, spills out all over the ground and it's now a, a mop-up operation, right? It will fall. It will not withstand the pressures of the invading army that, that they bring against it. So what's the next question now? Who is this enemy? Why is he attacking your tower? Or this man's tower? How relentless, how ruthless is the enemy? By now, you, we read it. Let's read it again, though, just in case. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first? You're supposed to sit down before you build this tower. And count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it. Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him. He can't. He didn't finish it. And now a whole bunch of people are mocking him. Who are the mockers? Where did they come from? I think you can make the case that the mockers are the attackers. They have found a tower that is easily destroyed. Why would you build a tower knowing you're going to be attacked and you don't build it properly? And if I'm going to attack, if I'm in the attacking business, which tower am I going to hit first? I'm going to hit the ones that didn't get finished very well, that's for sure. It's no different than why why isn't the Chronister household ever burglarized? Because we have three dogs and a lot of ammunition. That's why. Why not go to the neighbor's house? They don't have any dogs. They leave the door unlocked. They have no firearm. I can clean them up. That's how attackers think. They're not going after the strong towers. They're going after the weak towers. Why? If you know you're going to be attacked, that's the reason you're building the tower in the first place. It's the reason you're putting the foundation in. You know that's coming. Why won't you do it right? Because if you don't do it right, what happened to the man in the story? He's dead. How do I know he's dead? His tower got wiped out, destroyed, knocked down. And they're mocking what's left of him. These are killers are coming. I think you recognize that the man whose tower was overrun was killed. His attackers ruthless, relentless. His attackers slaughtered all that he was attempting to defend. All who he was attempting to defend. There's no survivors. His family was lost. He didn't build a strong tower. He didn't care to build it or he didn't know how to build it. It really doesn't matter which one is the case. Why would you put yourself in a position where you're going to be attacked and not follow the instructions? Here's the tower instructions. He didn't finish it. Why wouldn't you finish it? If you don't finish it, what's going to happen to you? You're going to be overrun and slaughtered. Your whole family. The enemy then mocked the dead man. They laugh at him. What a fool this man was. Building an unfinished tower. Stupid man. He had no chance. 
What was he thinking? Why even get into an unfinished tower? Now, Christ is using this example within the subject that is what? You remember? Let me read it back to you. Now, a great multitude went with him, and he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not love less his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. You cannot be his disciple unless you do what? You've got to build a tower. And if you don't do it right, you're going to be massacred. The context is discipleship. There's a cost to those who choose Christ. War will come to your door when you choose Christ. You better be ready. If your foundation is weak, poorly conceived, you will be massacred. Here's something for the fathers. Your family will be massacred. Torn to pieces, your tower in ruin, destruction. You would think then, what? As I... Get more moisture on the genetically poorly designed tongue that I got from my parents. You would think then that the Christians would care deeply about their foundations. I have found the opposite to be the case throughout my so-called career. The foundations are what in this example? It is the doctrines of Christ. The foundation, the doctrines of Christ are neglected, discarded. Certainly at this age, the Laodicean age, they were replaced by great swelling words of emptiness. Second Peter 2.18 Desires of the senses are inserted where concrete needs to be. What I like to call pretty flowers, no roots. The sun comes, the flower dies so fast it doesn't even have a chance. Second Peter 2.18, the time has come when Christians will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own feelings, because they have itching ears. I'm sorry, Second Timothy 4, through, uh, 4 3 through 4. 2 Peter 2.18 is replaced by great swelling words of emptiness. So get back to 2 Timothy 4. The time has come, will come, when Christians will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own feelings, because they have itching ears, they will turn away from the truth and be turned aside to nonsense. They will construct unfinished towers of cardboard and straw. Foundations of sand. Towers that have no chance of standing any kind of siege. And the price to be paid when the attackers attack is swift destruction, a mess, uh, their witness in chaos. Can't take, they have a glass jaw. They can't take a single punch. Can't have, they have no constancy, no consistency. They are blown to and fro, the Bible says. 
No root system. No strength. So, you have, if you're going to get in the disciple business, you don't need a permit. There's no building safety. The inspectors come and kill you. They ruin your life. I tell the story about the man that was told to go to a small, I believe it was Haiti, a small, it's a true story. Uh, I don't know all the details anymore. I've, I've lost my information on it, but essentially it goes like this. A man, a church was praying and praying and praying and praying and praying that somebody would step forward and go to Haiti as a missionary. Finally, they put so much pressure on this one family that they all agreed that they would go. And he went completely unprepared. He had no tower. He had no foundation. He had no doctrines of Christ. He went to Haiti. His whole family was killed. And it almost destroyed the church. And it should have destroyed the church, frankly. But a man came that did have foundation, did have doctrines of Christ, knew how to build a strong tower, was experienced in what it took to survive in that culture, and they took him and put him in there, and he has prospered. You would think that if you knew that being a disciple would require that you have sound doctrine of Christ, you at least understand the deity of Christ and the implications of it. If you don't have that, why are you trying to be a disciple? You're going to be massacred. Note that phrase. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first? You better sit down. So maybe that will get you started on the foundation and the tower. Now let's return to this king, this surrendering king, this same phrase. This king sits down first. He knows what's coming to him. Both the tower builder and the surrendering king sit down. They stop. They count. They consider. They figure out what is the most valuable thing. What is your priority? Your priority is to love Christ first. Well, you better know who he really is then and what he really wants. Where are you on the list? Well, let me read it again. If anyone comes to me and does not love less his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life. Your own life comes in dead last. You better figure that out. Better know who Christ is and put your priority correctly. Now start building your tower. Otherwise, you're just going to be your dead money. The king, he sits down. He stops. He counts. He considers. Counts the cost. He considers whether he is able. What's happening to the king? The surrendering king. What's happening to him? What's his predicament? He's the same, isn't he? The surrendering king knows something is going to come to him. A battle is coming. And he knows that the king that is coming towards him is what? is a greater king. So I have a king. He knows a greater king is coming. Again, what's the plan in all of these? Find Christ, right? A greater king is coming. How does a surrendering king know that a greater king is coming? How did he learn about the greater king? 
He knew the greater king is coming. I'll tell you right now, a greater king is coming, isn't he? And who knows about it? But the surrendering king knew that a greater king is coming. How did he know? The surrendering king begins the, to assess the prospects of his success. What does he, in defending himself, what does he decide? He decides, I hope you see the similarity to the tower building. They're, they're both faced with an overwhelming defeat. Which then begs the question, why not make a run for it? You're going to be wiped out. Why are you going to stand and fight? The tower builder can't even get his tower complete. Why is he even in it? Why didn't they make a run for it? Why not flee? Answer that question. Why didn't they run? Neither one ran. Tower builder didn't run and was destroyed. Surrendering king chooses not to run. Why not? Because I'm telling you, that's not an option. It's not a choice. You're not going to hide from the attacker or the greater king that's coming. They can't flee. The tower builder who has a poor foundation is unknowing of his impending fate, I believe, in this case. He doesn't know that he doesn't even know that he has a terrible foundation and a terrible tower. He is so ignorant of what he's done, he thinks that he's going to survive with this piece of junk. Can't even evaluate what he built. I think he's in a different situation than the surrendering king. He's in the worst possible place for a disciple of Christ to find yourself. You don't know that you don't know. The surrendering king, though, sits down and he figures it out. Makes him pretty interesting. He looks and he says, while the other king, the great king, is a great way off, the surrendering king says, you know, I have time. I have a little bit of time here. Not much, but I got some. While the coming king is still afar off. While the coming greater king is still afar off, I'm going to surrender. I need to surrender. What is he saying? I cannot prevail. I can't run. I can't prevail. The only choice I have is surrender. And what kind of surrender do you think is necessary, do you suppose? What will the surrendering king surrender? What are the going to be the conditions he's going to sue for peace, if you will? What are the conditions of the peace treaty? What will the greater king require of the surrendering king? Well, verse 33 tells us, won't it? So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. The conditions of surrender is everything. The greater king is going to ask for everything. The surrendering king will have to forsake all that he has. And he makes the decision to do so. Surrender is necessary. See, this, the surrendering king is very much like the tower and the foundation, but it's also, don't you notice, very much like the cross beam. When I put the cross beam on my back, I am admitting that I deserve to be executed. The surrendering king looks at the coming greater king and says, I need to surrender. Both of these are an admission of the facts 
What an example of wisdom this surrendering king exhibits. He's able to look at himself and see that he is in a hopeless situation. He is in a position of despair. The man with the crossbeam is able to put the crossbeam on his back and say, I too am in a hopeless situation, a position of despair. I deserve to be executed. I need mercy. I need a pardon. The only hope I've got is a pardon. The surrendering king, before the great king is near, he begs for peace. He begs for mercy. And not very many figure this out. The surrendering king figured it out. Christ says the gate is narrow. It's a single file is the implication. Mark Lindloff. Hi, Mark. I don't know if he still listens to me, but I get all of his stuff on Bookface. I don't get it. Lori gets it. But he made a comment that there's a stairway to heaven and a highway to hell. A narrow stairway to heaven, but it is a 20-lane highway to hell. The gate is very narrow, single file. And this king figures it out. He surrenders. Puts on his crossbeam. Follows Christ. But things have changed for us. What's changed in the story for us? It's still applicable. But something has changed. The coming greater king is not very far off now. He's really close. Time is short. It's time to sit down and count. Things are soon, in my view, going to get unbelievably difficult. Flowers are going to be burned up and towers are going to be knocked down. We're going to find out really fast who's got roots and who's got foundations. You're going to see entire churches, entire denominations shaken to the core because their foundation is unsound. Things are going to be a mess. Those who do not fully understand the essential doctrines of Jesus Christ are not going to fare well. I don't mean goodbye. I mean fair, F-A-R-E, comma, dot, 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 well. Things aren't going to go well for those who have unfinished towers on sand and muck. For those of you who think I don't do applicational sermons. I've sat in my chair for 20 years now. At least, maybe a little longer. Some people count from Cliffside, but I did it a couple, three, four years before Cliffside. Um, And I have seen people that look at me and say, I don't care if my doctrine is wrong. I don't care. I love being wrong. You've heard me say it many, many times. I love what I what I believe, and even if you prove to me without any controversy that I am believing something in error, I don't care. Well, sooner or later in your life, your tower gets hit, gets bombed. And I watched a lot of those towers go down in a heap. I've watched... I would count right now. 
I can think off the top of my head 20 pastors that I have seen stand up and you can call them today. Friends of mine, for many, many years they have given up and this is what they say. They have abandoned their faith and have denied Christ publicly. And every time I run into one, they are very, very angry, or not, not, they're, they're, they rush to tell me, they're anxious to tell me that they have quit and they no longer believe a single thing they said. And I looked at them and said, so, tower didn't take a hit, huh? You do not understand the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Arnold U. Fruchtenbaum says it this way, and I think he's incorrect. Arnold is a brilliant man, uh, well beyond my capabilities. Uh, I just he's essential reading, as you know. But he would make this statement. I don't know if he still makes it today. He said, "There is no salvation apart from sound doctrine in Christ." And. Uh, I don't think there's any time in the history of the Christian church where the doctrine of Christ has been destroyed. We are the Laodicean vomit now. And the king is on, on his way. Know what your tower is. Get it ready. Times are going to get tough. So I followed a very somber pre-sermon with this happy, seeker-sensitive thing that draws a crowd, right? No, I didn't. 